Well, as mentioned, today is Trinity Sunday. I'll try not to hurt your head. When we think of the Trinity, we often think, oh, there's these complicated sets of relations and ins and outs. And, and of course, there are things about the triune God that are difficult, even ineffable, even beyond comprehension. But much about the doctrine is simple and straightforward and plain. And I hope this morning to get a glimpse of the Trinity in a simple way. A simple way which shows us that it is both necessary and it's of great practical relevance to our life, to the church's life. It's both necessary and it's relevant that God is the triune God. And so our text this morning from the New Testament lesson is really just going to be the last verse of the reading. Uh, the famous benediction, which is also a prayer from 2 Corinthians 13 there, verse 14. Uh, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Notice how simply, how effortlessly the Trinity appears in all its fullness right there. It just sort of falls out of Paul's sleeves now and every once in a while. There's no long need for speculation or philosophical, you know, discourse. We'll see the Trinity simply, concretely in the life of the church later when with joy we celebrate Ha's baptism into the triune name, which you saw in the New Testament reading. Right? The living reality of the Trinity simply shines forth in the text out of Paul's prayer for, out of his blessing of the Christians at Corinth. Now think of this. This fact that Paul leaves this church, the Corinthian church, he leaves them after a series of long and turbulent letters and relationships, he leaves them with this benediction. That shows us something of its importance and its relevance to real churches with real problems on the ground. And so we'll make four points. They're all coming from that one verse. Just taking the verse in order, the four points are these. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the fourth point will be, be with you all. So first then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the persons here appear out of what we might think is the right order. The natural order of Father, and then Son, and then Spirit. And this is probably because Paul is beginning with your experience. He's following the order of the way we come to salvation. We first encounter the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, the tip of the spear of the Holy Trinity. He cracks open, if you will, Jewish monotheism. And he cracks it open in, in a way that it eventually leads to full-blown, full-blooded Christian Trinitarianism. We are not simply monotheists. We don't simply believe in God. We are Trinitarians. And it matters 
profoundly for our faith and for our life and for our mission that we are Trinitarians. And so Paul begins with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? Most simply, it's God's saving favor to us in our lost estate, in our sinful need. Grace is the undeserved gift of God by which we are saved. And as familiar as we think we may be with it, this grace is a completely new and an utterly singular, unique thing in the world. Into this world, where there is, as they say, no such thing as a free lunch. Where everything is viewed as working according to fixed laws. Where merit, merit, merit is the order of the day. Where everybody strives and fights and hopes to get what they deserve. After all, they deserve it. What they've earned into this world comes the free, free grace of God to people who not only don't deserve it, but deserve judgment instead. Grace is a completely new thing in the world. It cuts deeply against the way we naturally in our self-righteous achievement, attainment, culture think. The fact that we don't feel the cutting of this grace is an indication of our ability as Americans to assimilate this grace to the American dream and the American way of life rather than subordinate the things American to the free grace of God. Grace then, for all of our familiarity with it, is radically different from the way we naturally view the world. And describing the wonder of this thing actually stretches the apostolic vocabulary. Paul finds himself throughout his letters at a loss for words here. It's not simply that it's an undeserved gift. It's an undeserved and boundless bounty. And that's why Paul calls this grace rich. He calls it lavish, incomparable, glorious, unsearchable, superabundant. God is no miser. This grace overflows from the glorious fullness of his own life. You know, we've said it before here. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 1. There's really one doctrine in the Christian church. One. It's the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Everything else is a footnote to that. There's one central vision, one central passion, one central focus of the church. It is the triune God. And a people that are not absorbed with this fullness, the splendor, the perfection, the glory of that life will be disordered in their absorption in other things, even though they be Christian things. So this grace overflows out of the fullness 
of God's life to us, to you and I, who deserve nothing but judgment. No merit, no correspondence between who we are, what we've done, what we've been, and this grace. It's prodigal. It's promiscuous grace. And there's nothing then in our lives, no situation or trial which stands outside the need for this grace. It's comprehensive. It's sufficient. We need it, and we need it in its abundance. It is grace which has brought us safe thus far. And it is grace and nothing but grace which will lead us home. Now, in addition, you'll note in this text, this grace is personal. It's not a thing. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the grace of which he is the never-ending source. The grace which comes from him. And here I do want to say a brief word about the works of the Trinity. Um, God is one in all of his works. All three persons, they work in harmony. They work together in every work of God. But they don't do exactly the same thing in the same way. This is plain enough if we think about it, right? I mean, for instance, only the Son, the second person, becomes incarnate as man. The Father doesn't become incarnate, neither does the Spirit. Certain works of the Trinity then are said to belong in a certain way, a central way, to one member of the Trinity, with the understanding that the others are involved, but in a different way. Atonement is centered on the Son. The Son dies on the cross. But the Father sends the Son, and the Spirit empowers the Son's obedience. So when Paul says here, he attributes grace as coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not implying that when it comes to grace, the Father and the Spirit have nothing to do with it. He's simply saying that when it comes to grace, centrally and prominently, it comes to us through the person and the work of the Son. So back to the main point here. Grace comes to us through the one Paul calls the Lord, Jesus Christ. Remember he says in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. This whole emptying, this whole life, of Jesus is the indescribable gift of grace. That's God's saving help to us in our poverty. And it is that grace which opens up and allows us to glimpse into the very heart of God, the triune God. And that brings us to the second point. The love of God. Grace, love, and communion. The second point is the love of God. And God in this context, in this verse, clearly means God the Father. God, Scripture tells us, is love. This is a uniquely Christian vision of things. He is God is not law. He's not authority. He's not karma or some inner light or some path 
to enlightenment. God is love, utterly, completely love. God is love and in Him there is no hatred at all. There is nothing dark or unlovely in the being of God. He is pure, holy love. And when we speak this way, when we say that God is love, we are speaking the language of the Trinity. Because love cannot exist in isolation. It needs another and other to express itself toward. It needs another to receive the love and reciprocate the love. If God were not triune, if he were a solitary, isolated being, love could not exist. And so, as Trinity, when we say God is love, we mean he's a communion. He's a community of loving persons. We mean the Father and the Son and the Spirit exist eternally in these full, free, mutual relations of love. And that is what God is. But again, this is not an abstraction to us. We know this because this love of God, this love which God is, was such that it did not desire to be closed in on itself. Right? This God creates the world out of love, showering His goodness on all creatures, even His enemies. Right? Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, for He gives rain to the unjust. He showers His good gifts on His enemies. This God turns to us in love. And out of this infinite, tender love that God is, the Father sends forth the Son. Out of the depths of this love springs the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, of which you have been a partaker. And so this love, like the grace we've received, is also personal. God does not simply love humanity in general. He loves you. And He loves me. He loves us in particular. From this text, we could tweak the children's song this way. The Father loves me, this I know, because Jesus shows me so. The Father loves me, this I know, because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ shows me so. What Paul is doing here is he's tracing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ back to the love of the Father. And this love of God the Father assures us It assures us there is no dark, brooding, you know, capricious, unloving God behind the back of Jesus Christ. The the Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance, he tells a, a story of two separate incidents separated by many years in his life and ministry. The first occurred when he was a chaplain in World War II. He had volunteered and he found himself in Italy and he was ministering 
to a wounded soldier on the battlefield, soldier who he says had maybe 20 minutes to live. And the soldier asked him a startling question. Torrance was a young man at the time. The, the soldier asked him, is God really like Jesus? And years later, a dying woman in his congregation, when he went to visit her, asked him the exact same question. Is God really like Jesus? And he realized that some, perhaps many, have a sense that there's an angry God behind the back of Jesus. Or an unapproachable father. Or something terrifying, or at least mysterious, that God maybe is not really like Jesus. And so this right here, is God really like Jesus? This is where the doctrine of the Trinity becomes a matter of comfort and assurance in life and in death. To look into the face of the dying Jesus, to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is to know the eternal, unchanging love of God the Father for you. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, we saw this a few weeks back in John chapter 10, that means there's no gap between who they are and what they do. The Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the love of God the Father in action. But this is love. Not, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atonement for our sins. The Father loves me, this I know, because Jesus shows me so. And this brings us to the third point. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So in love, the Father sends the Son. In grace, the Son accomplishes redemption. And as the third person of the Holy Trinity, as Lord and God, the Spirit gathers us into communion or fellowship. I want to note a couple things about this fellowship here. First, it refers back to God's life. We already saw God is a fellowship. God's a communion. And communion, creating fellowship, is the job description, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. Theologians in the Christian tradition have long held, going back to Augustine in the 4th century, that the Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. And there's a number of biblical texts that you could point to to, to support that. Communion, fellowship creation, is what the Spirit does. He brings us into communion with the triune God. The Holy Spirit, to create this communion, to create this fellowship, has to work against all of our deceit and all of our opposition and all of our hostility and all of our dark, twisted alienation to make this reconciliation won by the grace of Jesus Christ real. He is the reason that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have come to taste the love of God the Father. And this Spirit, having united us to God, unites us to one another. 
The communion creating spirit creates the communion of the church. The communion creating spirit creates the communion of the church. You know, there's one body, Paul says in Ephesians 4, because there's one spirit. And so to be fixated on the spirit's work in us individually is a great distortion. Of course, we are to pay attention to our own souls. But the Holy Spirit creates fellowship, communion. He creates a church as a living community of love, a reflection of the Holy Trinity itself. And it's only in that fellowship, in the church, that we're called to holiness and to purity. Right? Radical, rugged individualism is not a Christian idea. Communion, community, with the God who is himself a communion and a community is a Christian idea. And so the Spirit's work, His presence in this benediction is not an afterthought. Without the communion-giving, fellowship-creating Spirit, the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be in vain. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life. And so we come finally to this last, and I think immensely important point. The last words of the benediction, be with you all. This love of God and this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, this fellowship or communion of the Spirit, they are not things that we simply confess. I hope we can see that. These are not just things in the ether for theologians to ponder. They must, Paul says, be with us all. Remember, this is how Paul concludes his correspondence to the Corinthian church. A church riddled with strife and rivalry, with corrupt practice and doctrine and all sorts of disorder. And this benediction constitutes his apostolic prayer for them. It's his medicine, his final dose for their ills. So the church does not simply confess the triune God. It desperately needs the triune God. Not God in general, but this God. The Holy Trinity is our life. We can flesh this out in conclusion by referring to each of the persons. The love of God the Father creates love among us. And then it requires then that we love one another even as we have been loved. And the love that flows from the Father is not proud. It doesn't boast. It isn't self-seeking. It isn't provoked. It keeps no record of wrongs. It believes all things. It bears all things. And it hopes all things. It endures. It must be with us if we are to be and exist as the body of Jesus Christ. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ demands that we be gracious. It demands that we not give people their just desserts. 
for God has not given us ours. This grace must season our speech. This grace must induce humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sheer generosity of God, is to open us up in generosity to one another, to all the saints. And if these things don't happen, then the Trinity is an abstraction. Leave it for the theologians. The fellowship, the fellowship or the communion of the Holy Spirit then, must overcome all our alienation, all our petty infighting and divisions, all our nursed hurts, all of our long historical memories. The communion of the Holy Spirit overcomes our bitter jealousies and our envy and our estrangement. The Spirit, Lord and God, is determined to create a community of holy ones, of saints who live with one another in a way that reflects the communion of God's own triune life. That's the Spirit's reason for existing in our presence. So this love of God the Father, this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this fellowship of the Spirit are and they must increasingly be with us all. Every last one of us. This is what it means to be Trinitarian. And to be Trinitarian is simply to be Christian. We confess, we live in, we delight, and we hope in this God. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, in God's own eternal life, and is now in the life of the church and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.